0: This is Strange Assembly episode 311, Second Inquisition. I'm here today to talk about Second Inquisition, the supplement for Vampire: The Masquerade 5th Edition. Hunters have always been present in Vampire: The Masquerade lone hunters, small cadres, hidden government conspiracies, Catholic remnants, and offshoots. One of the setting developments with V5 was a ramping up of this element with the introduction of the so-called Second Inquisition. Shreknet was compromised, the Tremere's prime chantry in Vienna was destroyed, London fell, and the Camarilla responded to these events with draconian new secrecy and anti-technological measures. Following on the heels of Sabat the Black Hand, Second Inquisition is a second antagonist book primarily aimed at helping storytellers deploy the Second Inquisition in their chronicles. There is, however, a lot more mechanically in Second Inquisition and a lot more to work with for someone who wants to make the hunters protagonists and who doesn't want to wait for the new edition of Hunter the Reckoning. So Second Inquisition ends up being a more broadly useful book than the basic description might make seem. So what is the Second Inquisition? One question you might have, and it's the first thing the book asks, is whether there really is such a thing as the Second Inquisition. The formal answer given by the book is that no, there really isn't a Second Inquisition, that it is more of an event and an organization. However, The actual contents of the book belie this answer because, although they call themselves the Coalition, not the Second Inquisition, there is an international organization dedicated to wiping out vampires. At that scale, it's more of an information-sharing group, not a hierarchical organization with a dedicated commander-in-chief. But all of the component organizations are. Those primary component organizations are informally known as the Five Torches, the Society of St. Leopold, and the Vampire Hunting Branches of the Governments of the United States, First Light, the United Kingdom, the Joint Threat Response Group, or JTRG, Brazil, the Boas I'm just going to go with because I my Portuguese is never going to let me pronounce a secret police operation battalion. And Russia, the GRU N58. Other nations also participate, including Egypt, Sweden, France, Japan, Israel, and Poland. Some of those organizations have subgroups as well. The United States effort, for example, is run by First Light, which is an interagency operation in U.S. intelligence, but it has a military and financial wing in the Information Awareness Office. These are the sort of folks who could say, strike at the aforementioned Prime Chantry with Extreme Prejudice, and the Federal Domestic Investigative Force in the FBI's Special Affairs Division, and also the ability to direct or nudge local law enforcement. If you read Second Inquisition, you'll note that there are a lot of acronyms and initialisms there. If you read the book before you dive into it, pay very close attention to the two-page SI lexicon near the front of the book, because the body text often just throws this stuff around without any sort of explanation. And the body text that provides the meat of the information on the organization of the Second Inquisition, which might make it easier to grok the significance of all that jargon, is near the end of the book. So with the usual vampire jargon on top of all this new Second Inquisition jargon and the less-than-optimal organization, Second Inquisition is not the smoothest RPG read I've ever experienced. Okay, but what are you reading in Second Inquisition? By far the largest component of Second Inquisition is basically a collection of NPCs, right? And the biggest chunk of that is is it's a collection of stat blocks, special powers, and opposing force, op4 types, which takes up about a third of the page count of the book. So you have A lot of just generic hunter NPCs, usually based on the role or tactic of the hunter blackmailers, undercover agents, interrogators, politicos, forensic accountants, investigator hackers, muscle, what have you. The NPCs are mostly mundane humans, but there's also a wide selection of hunters with powers several types of psychics, cunning folk, religious types with true faith, nullifiers, who can just turn off disciplines sorcerers, and ghouls. There are even some new alchemy powers for thin-blood characters who are working with the second Inquisition. The format for these blocks is generally a short introduction, followed by a short form stat block, and then a special power. For the normal mortals, this is a mechanic that represents what the mortal is good at. For the fancier types, it's an actual power. And as the book notes, some of these powers are Quite potent, like the aforementioned completely shutting down disciplines, and quite flexible. The, the Tremere would love to have blood sorcery versions of some of these sorcerer powers. So, right, these are not necessarily balanced as protagonist powers. Is is the point there? Something else that the book doesn't flag, but is probably good to keep in mind as a storyteller, is the raw number of dice thrown around by some of these stat blocks. In particular. There are a lot of combat-focused NPCs with stat blocks that roll 8 or 9 dice in their combat pools. It's very easy to get in the mindset of vampires are better than humans and forget that the most important thing about combat is winning the opposed combat roll. Most neonates will go down hard to a mortal with 9 dice in melee combat, or 8 dice in a sniper rifle and most SI operations will try to pit a team of mortals against a single vampire. So, just be careful as the storyteller when you're deploying some of these folks. Beyond the stat blocks are suggestions on building an opposing force and two sample opposing forces, which include dozens of character bios and some pages on preferred tactics. There are some background-style dots assigned here reach, scope, and more normal things like allies, influence, and contacts. The dots don't really seem to add anything to these as antagonists, but the text descriptions of the different sorts of opposing forces are handy, right? Ferreting out vampire influence, commandeer local law enforcement, guards, recon teams, mobile forces, amateur hunters, that sort of thing. Unfortunately, like many vampire coterie types, Many of these OP4 types have jargony names that make it hard to keep track of what they actually are. I dare you, I dare you, tell me in the comments on this what a Cynical, a Minotaur, or a Special Deployment Team is without having to look it up. After the NPCs, then there's a section on with with gear, right? Armory stuff, equipment, X-Tech artifacts. There are some of the fancy tech and religious artifacts here, but half of it is just mundane stuff and I would wager that that half of this chapter is going to get used a lot more. It includes some basic things that could come up in any Vampire Chronicle, really. Flare guns, tasers, flashbangs, explosives, armor and armor-piercing rounds for for the mortals. I I know vampires don't really need armor. Observational and spy gear, and, and even some vehicles. There's about 10 pages of that, so it isn't a ton, but, and I say this despite the fact that I, I know that this is the sort of book that they've printed multiple times in prior versions of World of Darkness, I have never felt that Vampire or the World of Darkness needs or benefits much from a vast array of gear. So I think that the quantity, the spread that they're providing here is a good length. The other half of the chapter is XTech tech and artifacts for when the storyteller really wants to make the characters miserable. Uh, not that you can't make the characters miserable with a decent GPS tracker and a SWAT helicopter. The X tech kicks off with way too many bloodborne pathogens aimed at infecting vampires, which kind of shows how far the Second Inquisition is willing to go. Combine a willingness to infect humans in some sort of overly convoluted plot to infect vampires with a tendency to kidnap and torture touchstones for information. And there's definitely the possibility of some Nietzschean moral comparisons, whether it's a traditional vampire or a game where the hunters are the protagonists. This is your battle not with monsters, lest ye become a monster. And if you gaze into the abyss, the abyss gazes also into you. Other tech can detect obfuscated vampires, simulate sunlight, and there's a chemical weapon that causes aggravated damage to vampires but doesn't affect mortals. You just have to give the second Inquisition a nuke, and they'll have completed their weapons of mass destruction trifecta. The artifacts are varied, but include an Enochian sarcophagus, mummified hearts prepared according to the writings of Ivencina, better known to native English speakers as Avicenna, an aspergillum containing a bone of St. Francis, a dagger constructed from a werewolf claw, and several relics from Catholic figures associated with driving out the dead. Given the Catholic origins of the original Inquisition and the presence of a Catholic religious organization as one of the five torches, it's no surprise that the religious artifacts lean towards the Catholic and the Christian. But that is definitely not the only source uh, of artifacts presented here. As for usability outside of a heavy SI chronicle, the X tech is a bit of a stretch unless you're willing to accept random mad scientist hunters coming up with one-off high-tech devices, but like the mundane gear, you could fit in a lot of these artifacts, right? You can just take an artifact and put them in the hands of a lone hunter of a religious persuasion, and now you can just kind of run without, without having to load in the whole organizational structure. The third section of the Second Inquisition book is Ideas and Systems for Running SI Operations. This chapter could have been entirely devoid of dice rolling. It's got a treasure trove of ideas for hunters to employ when going after vampires, many of them which link back to the NPC types presented elsewhere in the book. They cover investigative methods like analyzing hunting patterns, using informants, infiltrating herds. They cover ways of putting pressure on vampires like disrupting blood supplies or gentrifying hunting grounds or plain old direct surveillance. And just different kinds of attacks. Kidnapping, extortion, simple attacks, or just blowing Elysium up with all the vampires inside. But there are also mechanics presented for all of those leading up to the attack activities. Of course, mechanics already exist for the combat stuff. These mechanics are a bit out of place in this book. There's even a warning at the beginning of this chapter that the mechanics, which frequently involve the storyteller making uncontested roles, can easily amount to Storyteller Solitaire. That's that's their phrase, not mine. Storyteller Solitaire. I imagine that, in many games, the Storyteller will just have the tactics of the Hunter's workout as seems dramatically appropriate given the Chronicle and the PC's actions. But there are several uses for these mechanics. First, they could be used to support a Hunter Chronicle without having to wait for Hunter the Reckoning to come out again. Second, uh, even in the scope of a vampire game, they can still be used to help the storyteller let go a little bit. I'm reminded of one of the agendas in the excellent Monster Hearts role playing game keep the story feral. It's very easy in a game about controlling manipulators to try to lay out a controlled sort of story. Rolling the dice can work to counteract that tendency on the part of the storyteller. Even so, this possibility of rolling could only work out because most of these rolls can be made outside of the session. They represent long-term actions by the hunters. I don't think that I would ever use these storyteller solitaire mechanics during a session. In addition, there are a handful of projects that can be used either by or against the second Inquisition. Projects like Map Blank Body Networks or Against the Inquisition Cleanup. The player projects seem handy, covering a couple of topics that warrant a role, but would probably be tedious to play out in little drips and drabs, which is exactly what the project rules are best for. For the Inquisition projects, take everything I mentioned above and amplify it. I can't imagine ever working an NPC organization through the mechanics of a project. This is rank speculation on my part but the level of mechanical content here makes me wonder if there is a prior draft of this book sitting around that had rules for the second inquisition as protagonists but you know someone higher up in the licensing chain nixed that part of the planned book. I don't know. The last section of the book is on how to use the Second Inquisition in a chronicle. Uh, This is a pretty short chapter presenting information on story, setting, and thematic elements a storyteller might employ in a chronicle focused on the Second Inquisition. There are different chronicle structures. The SI is just poking around, the SI is attacking, or the city already fell and the vampires are living in what's left. There are ideas on drawing parallels between the First Inquisition and this one, There's a discussion on how to best deploy the characters' ignorance of what's going on versus how to scare the characters with some level of information. How might vampires try to deploy the Second Inquisition against their enemies? There's a bit of repetition here as the book tries to slice and dice a fluid situation in a variety of ways. For example, there is a chronicle structure and a theater of operation where both are about what level of presence or control the SI has in the city, but overall, it's a solid discussion. So, final thoughts here. Second Inquisition is much less of an antagonist book than Sabat the Black Hand was. Just because of the armory and equipment sections, there's already more here for a player to use. But in broader terms, there are actual mechanics for what the SI can do both individual characters and groups running operations. Sure, there's no character creation, but since there are already generic human character creation rules, it's not that far a leap to take those, let each player pick a hunter type from the NPC chapter and its special power, and figure out some sort of XP system for getting more powers. This book has to have an admonition that some of the powers are overpowered and would be broken when used by protagonists because there are actually mechanics that protagonists could use. Personally, I would rather wait until the new Hunter the Reckoning comes out and see how that goes, but if you're dying to make a second Inquisition Hunter Chronicle, there's actual material in here for that. What I do wish there was more of was advice on how to use the second Inquisition in a Chronicle when you don't want it to just take over the Chronicle. Personally, I have not been a big fan of the ramped up presence of hunters in V5. As some of the material in Second Inquisition accurately acknowledges, once the hunters are looking for you, it's almost impossible to avoid them unless you're dedicating your entire existence to that task, at which point this war spy campaign will take over everything else. Which, sure, That's a thing you can do with a chronicle. But that's also fairly far from the typical vampire chronicle. I mean, there's a reason why you don't see a lot of chronicles actually following even little things like the no cell phones ever rule. It's a lot easier to have an element of hunters in a campaign when the hunters are few, disorganized, or poorly resourced. But how do you do that when the enemy? has a massive data collection program that's constantly running an algorithm for people with a certain type of behavior pattern. You know, all your social media posts are at night. You never put food or medicine on your credit card. Your location data shows frequent visits to high crime areas, etc, etc. And that organization has the ability to send a SWAT team to your haven in the middle of the day. It's not that there isn't anything for this more limited style, right? You can use the hunter NPCs here without linking them with a global organization. But I would still like to have seen a bit more guidance because I am much more likely to run or plan a chronicle with some hunter elements than one where everything revolves around the Second Inquisition. Now, ultimately, based on the basic description, you might think that Second Inquisition is a pretty narrow book. Content for storytellers who want to run a chronicle that is taken over by the international conspiracy that is the Second Inquisition and its war on vampires. And if that's all that Second Inquisition delivered, it would be hard to recommend it to a broad audience. But Second Inquisition ends up delivering a lot more than that. Don't get me wrong, there's still a ton more for storytellers than players, like stacks of NPCs to be plugged in, or mystical artifacts to slip into the hunter's hands. But even players get a bit of thin-blood alchemy, more mechanical information on gear, and the possibility of playing as a hunter, notwithstanding the admonition that this is an antagonist book. And anyone can enjoy diving a bit more into the backstory of the Second Inquisition and its component organizations. You've been listening to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can find us on the web at www.strangeassembly.com. You can subscribe to this podcast there on the Apple Podcasts app, Spotify, Amazon, Google, whatever your preferred podcatching service is. If you don't see Strange Assembly on your preferred podcatching service, please let me know so I can correct that situation. You can reach me at chris at strangeassembly.com. You can also find us on the usual social media. We are facebook.com strangeassembly at Strange Assembly on Twitter, at Strange Assembly on Instagram, and you can also find the Strange Assembly channel on YouTube. But in the meantime, I'm Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly. Never. Stop. Gaming.